weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Well, a big thanks to the two Johnnies for the afternoon entertainment. It is Monday, October 9th. You're listening to Game On with me, Shane Dawson, and Ruby Walsh. Coming up over the next hour, we'll be reviewing a big weekend of association football action with two cracking FAI Cup semi-finals to reflect on and plenty of drama in the Premier League as Arsenal break their city hoodoo. And you have to say that, you know, against Manchester City today, it's a very even game, very tactical affair. Not a lot has happened. And, of course, a goal... You know, it, it got that uh, that lucky deflection, and and they're winning this game one 0 We're past the 94th minute. There it is. That is the noise of the Emirates celebrating Arsenal's win over the champions Manchester City. Mikel Arteta's first Premier League win over Manchester City as the Arsenal manager. Well, there was plenty of excitement in the Rugby World Cup over the weekend as well. We'll be joined by former Irish international Mike Ross and Hugh Farley of the Irish Daily Mail to look back on how the Portuguese stunned the Fijians, how Samoa almost derailed the chariot and, of course, how Ireland made it 4 from 4 in Pool B with their victory over Scotland. As the ball has kicked into touch across on the far side of the pitch and the referee has blown the full-time whistle. This game was over from a long way out, to be perfectly fair about it. It's kind of hard to read too much into the second half of this game, David Humphreys, but Ireland uh, in command from a long, long way out. I don't read anything into the second half, really, Michael, to be honest. When you look at that first half, it's as good a performance, as complete a performance. Never perfect, but as complete a performance as you could ever hope for going into the next few weeks. Wonderful way to end the pool stages. Wonderful way to set themselves up for what is now going to be an absolutely monumental clash against the All Blacks. We'll also wrap up today's sports news headlines, so if you want to have your say, drop us a text 51552 or tweet us at Game On 2FM. Game On on 2FM. Well, Ruby Walsh, Ruby Walsh, how are you? Good weekend. I'm wonderful, Shane, yourself? I'm... All the better for speaking to you. All the better I for speaking to you. I doubt that for some reason, <laughs> aren't you? We'll keep, we'll keep going. We'll keep says. going. Uh, before we chat to Hugh Farley and Alan Colley, a couple of news headlines just to rattle through first. Um, Ruby, Sammy Smoddox has been called up to the Republic of Ireland squad for the Euro 2024 qualifiers with Greece and Gibraltar. Smoddox, who has scored seven goals in the championship for Blackburn Rovers this season, comes into the squad to replace the injured Aaron Connolly. He secured, uh, of course, his Irish passport earlier in 2021 for his first call-up, but his shoulder issue ruled him out of those games. The rest of the squad has reported for international duty today before training preparations begin tomorrow Ireland of course play Greece on Friday before travelling to Faro to play Gibraltar on Monday two matches you can hear live commentary of here on 2FM uh, Birmingham City have sacked head coach John Hustis uh, despite a bright start to the season increasing rumours of former England captain Wayne Rooney taking charge at the club Hustis the former Republic of Ireland assistant manager led Birmingham to safety last season while a come from behind 3-1 derby win over West Brom on Friday left the Blues 6th in the championship after 11 fixtures but he's got the boot. Uh, the Irish Examiner actually also reporting John O'Shea could link up with Rooney as part of a backroom team. Uh, potentially uh, rugby news, Anton Dupont's chances of playing in France's quarter-final clash against defending champions South Africa at the Rugby World Cup were given a massive boost when he was cleared to resume rugby training today. The team captain underwent surgery on a broken cheekbone just over two weeks ago and after quickly going back to the light training was waiting for the green light from his surgeon to start making contact with other players. Uh, in golf, 
having celebrated Europe's Ryder Cup win a week ago, Matt Fitzpatrick is back celebrating a tournament victory, this time at the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship in Scotland. He won the weather hit event by three shots on 19 under par. Tom McKibben finished best of the Irish on 12 under. And finally in snooker, Ken Doherty lost 5-1 to Ronnie O'Sullivan in the first round of the Wuhan Open in China. Mark Allen was 5-4 winner against Mark Joyce. Wuhan, not the kind yeah. of place you associate with snooker, no, is it? No, no. Less said no, about that, the better. Of Wuhan, yeah. don't we? <laughs> um, Hugh Farrelly and Alan Collier are both here. We will be ch- uh, chatting soccer in due course. We'll be chatting rugby very soon. Hugh Farrelly first. How are you, sir? What was your uh, sporting highlight from the weekend? I'll tell you, the sporting highlight came yesterday afternoon. I was up in... Um, Deer Park, which is up in Kilmacud there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go up there on a Sunday with the young fellas, maybe fly a kite, throw a ball around, whatever. And normally it's all uh, hurlies and stuff because it's Kilmacud Crokes is just down the road. Yeah. And, you know, you have Liverpool jerseys. I think Liverpool were playing yesterday. Um, it was all rugby. It was just kids everywhere with rugby balls. And they were kind of, you know, they were doing the thing where the, the Johnny Sexton stands and looking at the post and taking the kicks. And I'd never seen it before. And it just shows you... Um, how this thing has taken off, you know. Mm. And this gas, like, you know, I heard uh, Roland O'Gara saying how it's kind of sweeping up casual fans. There was, a, there was kind of a granny there with her toddler and the toddler was running with the ball and he scored a try and the granny goes, touchdown, you know, like, <laughs> having a glimmer but was into it and loving it and it just kind of captured for me the the feel-good factor because, mm. you know, I'd be a bit older than you lads. No, I, I remember all the implosions that have gone on for under the World Cups and I'm naturally kind of pessimistic I thought we over you know there was too much made to South Africa win nothing really at stake I thought Scotland were being taken for granted a bit and then you watch what happened on Saturday it was just just incredible like, mm. I mean that's a decent Scotland team you know that, that backline I would argue is as good as I've seen a Scotland backline and they were just blown out of it I mean they actually after the early try by Ireland they came back at us and they played well in a way that would have taking most teams mm. out and Ireland just swatted them away and then you could see the Scots were gone mentally so I mean you know in all the World Cups I was lucky enough to cover a good few and I remember all of them I've never remembered a situation where the team has arrived into the key game in this good estate I know there's injuries but mentally and the way they're looking it's, it's the best I've ever seen mm. It's funny I'm just laughing listening to there Hugh uh, up in Deer Park it's kind of like the summertime in Wimbledon is on isn't it everyone's out they're all playing everyone's tennis out, yeah <laughs> Uh, but I tell you, I, I don't want to uh, digress, but I, I, I'm not a GA man, but if, if Dublin don't have an All-Ireland win hurling team in 10 years, every kid has a hurley around the place. Like it, it, mm. it's, I know Kimmerker Cross is a monster club. Kula had that that, that yeah. kind of spell where, and I think there was a really nice documentary, and we are going off on a tangent here, but when, when Kula really became a hurling stronghold for, for that period, if you look at all the parents of a lot of the players, yeah. they're all people who settled in Dublin from the country who kind of had that hurling stock and hurling background and, and, and kind of developed it in, but um, that's a complete tangent. Well, <laughs> tangent well, it is a tangent, there, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the kids, you know, without getting too um, Tommy Gorman all about the kids, but like, um, you know, rugby has its issues with safety. So my, my own kids, um, I took them out of rugby, you know, which I didn't want to do. They weren't into it. They didn't like the, the physical side of it, mm. you know, and, you know, I obviously it would have been dominating my life. So I wanted them to play. They're playing basketball and soccer now. But there's issues for parents and to something like this where they've a team to look at successfully playing that brand of rugby. And as as Ronan said earlier, Ronan O'Gara, they're very accessible. They're down to earth. They're an earthy team. You know, they're... Mm. Munster were very popular 20 years ago. Like, rugby can be can be quite exclusionary. It's it's 
a lot of jargon, a lot of, you know, jackling and soft shoulders and all this, and the rules are quite dense. And this team just feel far more accessible and approachable and watchable. Mm. And I think that's that's a great boost for the game. Hugh, you say you took your kids out, out of playing rugby. Obviously, I rode, which is not a an un attention of sport. My kids ride because they want to ride. If your kids had wanted to play rugby, would you have taken them away from it? No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I had issues with the with the the the, the stand. The coaching is handed down from on high, so they're they're taught to tackle and clean out rocks and stuff at seven eight years of age. I personally thought that was too young. I wouldn't have them do anything but tip rugby up to the age of 12, 13, 14. And my eldest fella, he got really nervous. He started getting, I, shouldn't, I don't know if I make this public, but he started getting nervous ticks and stuff. He started dreading going to rugby and he didn't want to disappoint me, so he was going along. And eventually it just got too much, so um, it pulled it out. I mean, there are still ongoing issues with safety in the game. I heard a discussion on TV yesterday about, you know, they're loosening the, the strict policing of, of the high tackles which I think is crazy mm. you know, they're, they're talking about rugby and stuff the uh, the solution to this has been there for years I'm, I'm blue in the face and saying it you reduce the tackle height to armpit height so you have to tackle below that and then players have to go below that or they get punished and, and they haven't done that um, so there are ongoing safety issues and you know I do I do think the level of coaching in Ireland is excellent and, and they're doing as best as they can but it's you know it, it's, it's each individual situation but I think something like this at this World Cup is going to bring floods of kids into the game. Absolutely. Um, before we, we, we dive into to rugby properly, Alan, I do just want to, to uh, mention your, your trips over the weekend. You had a good weekend of, of football. I'm living the dream, Shane. You are. That's why I, br- I said last time. I'm the high life. It, bringing it right back to, um, I suppose, my love and my passion. And yeah, I got to see live Premier League football Saturday and live FEI Cup semi-final yesterday. Uh, so yeah, I've had a good weekend. I was obviously over at the Spurs match Saturday. Mm. Um second week in a row which is even nicer as, as well yeah. Shane and they're riding high and going well we'll get into that later on uh, and then obviously the big game down in Cork yesterday the semi-final uh, we were covering that as well so um, again we'll have a, a bigger discussion about that but yeah brilliant weekend Where was the better atmosphere? Uh, the two actually unusually you go to a Premier League ground mm. and obviously they're all state-of-the-art stadiums now yeah. in terms of 40, 50,000 capacities. This was a home-from-home home for me, Shane, because Kenilworth Road was like going into Oriel Park <laughs> or going into Turner's Cross yesterday. Yeah. Similar capacities, similar atmosphere, similar in the sense of where they're located in the the areas that obviously um, they are in terms of the houses around them and all that kind of stuff. So it was a home-from-home, home really, mm. and it was a brilliant atmosphere on Saturday with Luton. Um, and the same yesterday down at Turner's Cross, I think it was 6,500 at the game. St. Pat's brought a huge crowd so mm. similar. I'm not. That's not me trying to juke out of that one, Shane. That's a very political answer. No, it wasn't. No, pre-budget I, I, day. I that's would say that's straight <laughs> out. And uh, yeah, it was. It was actually very similar, and almost kind of uh, brought me back to because obviously the week before we were in the Spurs Stadium, which is amazing. Don't yeah. get me wrong; it's incredible, and for anyone that gets the opportunity to go, it really is amazing. Mm. But this was kind of what I was brought up with: Kenilworth Road and Luton Town, and the character and soul of the place. And I love that, and I hope. We probably will all. We probably will come to the stage where there will be no Kenilworth Roads in the Premier mm. League and stuff like that eventually. But I would hate to think there will be a day like that because, as I say, it's what I've been brought up with. That's mm. what football's all about: community and the soul of the place and the character of the place. And um, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Can I just ask, Alan? Um, six and a half thousand is a good crowd for massive. Yeah, like Turner's Cross, like Cork. 
Cork at the, one of the best crowds. Sorry, this my Cork hat on now. But should, should Cork be better than they are with the population? And a hundred percent, Hugh. A hundred percent. They've had a really poor season. They obviously only got promoted at the start of this season, and they were hoping just to establish themselves back in the Premier Division and build from there. They have new owners, but it's just been an absolute disaster on the pitch. Where do all the young fans that come up through Cork? I mean, it's a big population. And, yeah, and Ramblers as well as a feeder. Club. Again, like something similar about your conversation earlier in terms of rugby being very dominant now. Gaelic yeah. hurling, like so, we're always competing with those kind of yeah. sports, and unfortunately for them at the moment, and in terms of the national team, and again to bring it back to the point you're making about the connection with the fans now, and just Joe Public, who I'd be just a normal fan and wouldn't be mad into the rugby, but I'm on board with this as well and stuff like that. So you're losing, we're losing young players yeah. um, to the different sports, and it's a challenge now for the young soccer teams and players to get the the talent if you like uh, at an early age to stick to that one sport rather than losing them to Gaelic or rugby or whatever the case may mm. be and it has a knock on effect then in terms of what we see with Stephen Kenny and the international yeah. team you know yeah. right lads the budget's tomorrow we leave all the, 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 <laughs> the and, and you mentioned Oriel Park or, there's <laughs> drawings the as well tomorrow. and you're only trying to join in there's that many sports in Ireland you only have 5 million people there's not enough to go around R- moving swiftly on I have an hour chat in League of Ireland if you want Mike Ross is on the line much more important we're talking Rugby World Cup we're trying to get people to play rugby Mike an unbelievable first half from Ireland at the weekend yeah, um, I, I certainly wasn't expecting it to be like 26 nil up at half time. <clears throat> I thought the Scots would have fired a shot by that stage, but they just kind of like laid down a marker from the get go. And you know, James all scooting over after two minutes is like a dream start, and we just kept going from there. David Humphrey said in the top of the show there he wouldn't be at all worried about the second half. It was a game of two halves. Would you see it as simply as that? Yeah, I, look, um, Scott's got two two quick fire tries. You know, we kind of took our foot off the gas a little bit that day, um, which you know shows how dangerous they are. But I wasn't worried of like a repeat of them and tweaking them a few years ago. You know, when uh, I was going back and forth, I think um, you know the, the disruptions of the back line. You know, both both wingers off that stage. You Jameson Gibson Park slotting at wing and Gary Ring Rose in the other. So it was a really big back line, but. Um, Look, you know, putting up that score in in the last game, the pool stage, putting us into um, you know a, a guaranteed slot against New Zealand. I can't really pick holes in it too much, to be honest. Hugh, you mentioned, I suppose, the good start there, and, and it follows up on, on what Mike was saying as well. Is this the most ruthless Ireland side we've seen in a Rugby World Cup? Yeah, I think um, I think in terms of their coaching the way they, they just put teams away and hammer it's very Southern Hemisphere like it's very mm. like the All Blacks you know like they look like a team that's number one in the world now do you know like people were kind of saying it and rolling their eyes before but now they look like they can take what's ever thrown at them I mean I, I was on a couple of weeks ago and chatting to Ruby and we were sol- deciding how to solve the line out and, and the line out transformation like it was like we were saying just keep it simple keep it straight work it out do it and just hammer it home like mm. e- everything about them is is you use the word ruthless, like ruthlessly efficient, um, and that's what gives you conf- what gives you confidence next weekend because, you know, they they look like they've planned for everything, and now it's it's a totally different uh, challenge next weekend, and it, you know, I, the Scots talk themselves up that, that, that this is different gravy altogether, mm. but the way Farrell has this team going, you think they'll have prepared for every eventuality, and that is ruthless. Mike, listening to reports today, the Irish team is going to be announced on Wednesday, which would suggest maybe the injury issues or worries are are going the right direction. But Andy Farrell said in his, his post-match interview, we have to recover properly with a spring in our step. 
is that going to be the hardest thing for this Irish team having played the Springboks and Scotland two of the top two teams ranked in the top five in the world in the last fortnight I, I think that I think they've been good stead going into um, the New Zealand match right so the They'd be pretty battle-hardened at this stage, you know. Uh, I think of all the group games, the Springboks is probably the one that took most of them physically. You know, a little bit of worry there. Uh, James Ryan, is he going to be fit? You know, um, is Matt Hansen going to be fit? I'd be fairly confident James Lowe will be okay. I mean, I've got poked in the eye before and it's sore, but usually eye, eye heals up quickly, so he might be wearing an eye patch for four or five days. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if we get, get the correct personnel out on the pitch then we have the best chance we've ever had of progressing beyond the quarterfinal stage Is wear and tear an issue Mike and I asked that I saw Brett Igo um, a Leinster schools um, coach and a sports uh, academic researcher on Twitter was kind of just totting up the the game time between Ireland and New Zealand players. So in the front row, Tyke Furlong and Andrew Porter, 230 minutes, 211 minutes. Uh, the most from a New Zealand front row is 180. Uh, similar in the back row, Doris, 268, O'Mahony, 265, Van der Fleer, 263. And then Ardy Savea, the, the most from a New Zealander, 223. So, you know, Ireland, their top players have played a lot more minutes and we see these couple of injury concerns. But it is wear and tear factor with that in mind. Depends on the personnel, you know. Depends on the individual. Uh, I know, you know, generally for front row, the more minutes, the better. You know, you could find yourself operating a bit better. Um, it, like it depends, it depends, you know, um, on your this stage of the season. You know, those those aren't big numbers. You know, if if we're coming to the end of the season and they're up around fifteen, sixteen, eighteen hundred minutes, then that cumulative load would be a concern. But at this stage, no, I, I wouldn't think so. That yeah. all sounds pretty good to me, Shane. We're all pretty happy. <laughs> Injury-wise, were you surprised or maybe happy, Mike, that there was no changes to the squad? Nobody's been called in, nobody's been sent home. Would you, reading between the lines, be taking that as a positive? Yeah, look, it, it, I, I will ha- admit to a um, a small wish that Keen Healy gets out there at some stage. You know, um, I, was, I was lobbying for him to come out for Robbie Henshaw that he had, if Robbie had to go home. But, um, no, I, I think, you know, generally the teams that win us, if you, if you look through the history books, I mean, England 2003 didn't change their side that much. You know, New Zealand 2015 didn't change their side that much. You know, so a consistent, settled squad, you know, um, is, is generally a, a good indicator of uh, that you're going to perform well. So I, I think, you know, the S&C team have done pretty well. You know, uh, from what I've heard coming out of the camp, they haven't gone doing, doing any mindless conditioning as such, which has often be the case in preparation for a lead-up to a tournament, that all their conditioning has come from actually just playing games, you know, training games. So I, I think that, you know, bodes well. So, you know, like, you know, if you want to be rugby fit, play rugby. So that's from a player point of view that kind of... <clears throat> stems from, from management and meticulous planning and that leads me on to I, I do want to ask you mm. um, yourself about, about Joe Schmidt um, first but but first we can actually hear from Irish team manager Mick Carney who, who kind of said that you know Joe Schmidt's uh, knowledge of Irish rugby it won't count for much I've kind of maintained kind of very close relationship with Joe over the years and uh, while we haven't been texting over the last uh, the last few days I'm looking forward to catching up with him 
he was an amazing coach for Ireland for the years that he was involved and I think um, brought Ireland to, to a new level when he took over in, in 2013 and had some magnificent success, including a couple of wins against um, against uh, the All Blacks in Chicago and in, and in Dublin. So, you know, there's a lot of, I suppose, talk about Joe knowing knowing players inside out and whatever, but to me, I think they're, I think all teams know know each other so well that, that I don't necessarily think that that's any, any great advantage. I think we obviously know New Zealand well, haven't played them three times in, in the Test Series last July. So, um, looking forward to it um, and looking forward to, to catching up with Joe. So that's Irish team manager Mick Carney's view and now we can also hear from New Zealand head coach Ian Foster on the same topic. Oh, look, it's been great having, um, you know, he's, t- to be fair, Joe, it's, you know, he, he, he's an all-black coach and um, he's very much, his mindset is about, as, as, as is mine, it's about, you know, what we do well and, and making sure we nail that. It's not so much a, a matter of sort of micro-analysing them to the 10th degree that we get hung up and dampen our own game a little bit. So, And, and you know, he's brought a lot of uh, focus on, on our game, making sure we get our game right. But, you know, he, he knows the Irish well, and clearly he does. And But that's, that's information that we've been tapping into, I guess, the last 12 months and, and getting his his nows and, and how we refine how we play. So that's really our number one mindset, to be honest. Oh, no, they've definitely evolved their game too, I think. I think they've, um, I won't go into too many details, but they've, you know, they haven't achieved what they've achieved by standing still. And um, and you look at their record, I mean, we, we were the last team to beat them at Eden Park, and since then they've had a great record. I mean, they'll be looking at that consecutive wins, and, and, and they've earned that. So there's no doubt that, um, that they've evolved their game. They've got a a group of players that's probably at this is this is probably their moment you know they if they're ever going to win win a world cup they'll probably feel like it's now and and um and we've got some we've got some players and and as a team we're kind of in the same mode and so pretty exciting so Hugh Farley, how big of a factor how big of a deciding factor in Ireland New Zealand will be the Joe Schmidt factor well we sacked Warren Gatland in 2001 and he's made it his life's mission to punish Irish rugby since. And I, ju- I think, I was delighted to hear McCarley say there describing him as an amazing coach because I think, and I've written about this a few times and I've been on about it a while, some of the revisionism of Joe Schmidt has been disgraceful. Like the stuff and the stuff that's said in the media and I know I was gone off the beat when Joe was there at the end but like I know he, the relationship with the media was rocky enough and... They once he was gone, they seemed to kind of turn on him. And then when Farrell turned out to be so good, everything that Joe Schmidt did was bad. Now Mike would know him a lot better having played with him, but I, my association with him was was very positive. I always thought it, thought it was great to deal with. You could pick him up the phone to him and talk to him, and he did amazing things for Irish rugby. That's the word Mick Kearney used, and he was. I mean, he came in, he turned the whole thing around, and people say well, he played this kind of percentage rugby. When Leinster won those two European Cups in eleven and twelve, they were playing scintillating stuff. Mm. And he gave a mindset to Irish rugby that has us where we are now. He was vital to it. And some of the stuff I was reading at the start when they lost to France in the first game, there was talk, you know, in, in papers and by pundits about, oh, we want New Zealand to the quarters and Joe Schmidt beating Dockers. You know, he knows how this ends. Haven't been there. like it was. I thought I thought it was really disrespectful. And I think aside from his individual motivation to put one over in us, I think collectively, 
the, the summer series win in New Zealand ripped the heart out of them. That they are a rugby nation more than any other nation in the world. They've other things going on, you know, Lord of the Rings, Courage Economy, but rugby dominates everything. And they're looking at this as payback. And people forget about there was a game in November, a kind of a throwaway fixture when they were on the November tour against Ireland Day. It's a strong Ireland Day team. It was the first chance the New Zealanders had to get a goal in a green jersey and they blew us off the park. It was like 54 or something. I can't remember. It was a massive score. Um, and I think that is fueling. Their whole country is straining at the leash to have a goal this. And I think Joe Schmidt more than anyone. Mike, obviously you do know Joe Schmidt better than any of us. Would you fear him as a coach on the opposition team? I always would, right? Because, um, you know, Joe, I know they say he's not going to be micro-analyzing, but he bloody well will be. You know, he will be micro-analyzing it and he'll be going through um, our defense and looking for little gaps around rocks or if we're short in the backfield somewhere or, you know, any weakness he can find and then he'll, he's always good for coming up with one or two set phase plays to exploit that. So, yeah, I, I, I worry about him um, and what, what what he can do because the same thing, like, you know, I, I, I agree with you too, um, like his, his foot per- you know, he kind of brought, we're, we're, we're building, we've built on the work that he brought, you know, b- b- before um, Andy Farrell took over. You know, you can, see, you can still see us in our breakdown efficiency and our in our um, speed defeat and in our in our work rate. So, you know, and, and he's come on and added another layer to what Joe brought, but, you know, there's still bits of Joe in the Irish DNA. And, it, like, he really brought to a level of consistency I don't think we've been at before. You know, um, and Farrell's brought it on again. So, yeah, I would be a little bit worried, but um, I, I still think we will have too much in the end. I mean, I was watching the New Zealand-France game, and um, New Zealand looked uncharacteristically sloppy. You know, drop, they dropped more balls than you'd ever really see them dropping. Now, maybe that's the quality of the French pressure they brought on, but, you know, have, have New Zealand really been challenged since then? I don't know. I mean, they made Italy look very poor, but then Italy backed up that performance, another bad performance in France. So it's kind of hard to tell where they're at, but I, I think, you know, um, if you want to win a World Cup, you're going to have to beat them at some stage. So next weekend's a perfect opportunity. When you're reflecting on it, Mike, and I know you mentioned how, how much Ireland have evolved under Andy Farrell, but are there any Joe Schmidt-isms that we kind of rely on that perhaps might undo us against New Zealand with Joe Schmidt being in the, the opposite technical area? It, it's hard to know. Um, like the things that we rely on from a Joe Schmidt perspective is probably our rock, rock quality and rock speed. You know, that was always a big focus of his. Also, you know the, the, how effective our wingers are in the air. That was always an important part of Joe's plan. You get a good contestable box up from Conor Murray and have one of the wingers chase it down, grab it, and then you know you're in behind and they're defensive scrambling to get reset. So you know, he'll, he'll definitely be testing us in those areas. He's going to be if Joe Smith's side will be sending contestable kicks down between the five and the fifteen meters. Plus, I don't know. I wouldn't be too okay with the New Zealand wingers to be honest. And their strengths in there are weaknesses. So. We'll see, but like he's always good at identifying a momentary hole in defence and then creating a play to exploit that. So, you know, certainly his speciality would have been like an inside ball off, off a first receiver to expose a little gap in the defence folding round from from a far side rook. 
I have a feeling that New Zealand and Ireland are going to be scrutinised to death by Saturday after Saturday evening, evening. So, Hugh, we're going to move it back to the weekend. And a lot of this World Cup has had criticism for mismatches and cricket scores more than rugby scores. But I thought there was some cracking or massively entertaining games of the weekend. Portugal, Fiji, Tonga, Romania, Argentina, Japan, and even England and Samoa. Yeah, the, the two that stood out to me were the Argentina um, win and the the Portugal game is just, you know, exhilarating to watch. Um, yeah, it's good to see that because there has been a lot of talk with those mismatches. Um, I, I think there is, I think the talk of um, reducing the number of teams, I, I, I don't want to get too nerdy on it, but the cricket has this thing where they have the 10 best teams in the world play it off. But before that, they have a pre-qualifying tournament which produces two teams that are battle-hardened going into it. Now, I know rugby is a more physically tolling game than cricket, obviously, but something like that needs to be looked at. But you see you see this team like Portugal. I mean, they were just fantastic to watch. And the skill levels, I think, caught people by surprise. But I have to say, you know, we're talking about, Mike talking about New Zealand and Ireland, what they're going to bring. And it's crying over spilt milk, and I, I hate to raise it again, but we're going we're to have four teams in the quarterfinal, Argentina, Wales, England and Fiji and New Zealand and Ireland will put 40 points in all of them and yet one of us is going home you know there's something intrinsically wrong with that and I, 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 I that's kind of bubbling away in me making me angry when I look at it because I, I, I think England and, and Wales are average at best and the likely is they could be both in semi-finals unfortunately They both could so makes this weekend even more important to you Well I mean it would be so Irish if we beat the All Blacks and then go out to Wales. And, like, but you know what? I wouldn't care because we'd at least we'd have made the semi. Well, you would care, but you know what I mean? At least we'd have bust the hoodoo. But yeah, I mean, you'd have to say whoever gets through this game on Saturday, and it is, a, as everyone's saying, a flick of a coin, they're pretty much, they'd have to go into the final because they're just levels above in terms of coaching and playing ability and, and cohesiveness than what they're going to meet in the semi. And Mike, when you do look at those other teams at the weekend, it didn't look to me like any of them were progressing through this tournament. If anything, they were regressing slightly, including the Fijians and England. I, I must say, like, I've really enjoyed Portugal this tournament, watching them, and um, they finally got the reward against Fiji. But like, that's Fiji, though. You know, I mean, they can absolutely turn it on. They underestimate the opposition, which they probably did a bit against Portugal, and they can put in a performance like that. You know, but uh, like, the always worrying thing about Fiji is that they they finally get a set piece. You know, that was always a fear of other teams. They seem to have that at the moment. You know, so I wouldn't be surprised. If, you know, if they came out the right side of, of the quarter final. You know, um, England played their first best game against Argentina, where they absolutely just murdered Argentina with their light and speed and defence and kicked everything. So. We're well, interested to see if that, 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 that trick will repeat itself. We will be previewing all um, quarterfinals uh, throughout the week, uh, as Ruby alluded to there. But Hugh, if I just wrap up the, the rugby chat with a question to yourself. Yes, this was kind of a, a standalone uh, result for, for Portugal. But given what we've seen from the lesser European teams, does this strengthen the case for a promotion relegation uh, system in the Six Nations? Mike referenced the Italy game. That was that was a real shock to the system. Mm. You know, Italy were supposed to be improving. They were they had improved. They they did victories to prove it. Australia and recent victories in the Six Nations and under Kieran Crowley and then New Zealand put ninety odd points on them. You mm. know, I mean that's 
that weakens the argument, you know. Then Georgia have their moments. But, but does that not threaten the argument that Italy need to be in a promotion relegation and then the likes of your Georgias or your, or your Portugals then have the opportunity? The fear there, and you're talking about the old school Blazers going back to the 1890s here, is like you, Scotland have a bad year or Wales have a bad year and they end up in Division 2 and that's a disaster, you know. Mm. So I think in theory, yeah, I think I think, I think think relegation promotion would, would give, give, you know, a... a uh, established format, a bit of an extra lift, a bit of a bit of a zest. So I, I would agree in principle. But I, I, I think I think the best argument is Portugal. I mean, mm. the skill levels they were shown, even the basic things of hitting the ball at depth and and what they were trying to do and the energy they played. I think people need to see more of that. So I would I would agree in principle with the promotion relegation theory. Okay, who knows? We'll be interested to see. Um, Hugh Farley of the Irish Daily Mail. Thank you very much uh, for popping in. Uh, Mike Ross from our Ireland International. Thank you uh, as well. As I mentioned, we will be previewing um, all of the rugby uh, in due course. But we're going to take a short break and then we're going to turn our attention to football in the company of Alan Colley and Stephen Kelly. So stick with us here on Game On 2FM. Game On. Football. Welcome back to Game On. So Alan Colley, credit has to be given where credit is due. You did say... Man City wouldn't <laughs> go through the season unbeaten. You did say Arsenal will be title contenders. Did you feel so vindicated by it? Eight games side? in. Sorry, eight games in. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not. Um, I'm not one for self praise, Ruby. I'll just. I'll just leave you and give me the praise. <laughs> I'll give you the praise here. <laughs> you are. So I'm not going. I'm just going to leave it at that. But I know. Um, I just felt. To be fair to Arsenal, and we've praised Arteta since he's come in and the job that he's done, and obviously. Uh, getting close, close-ish last year. That they were always obviously going to go again in the in the off season and strengthen. And I think they've done that well, with particularly with Declan Rice. I thought he was the the cog that was really missing uh, in that centre midfield area. And I think he's been a massive asset to them since he's come in. And I still think there's room for improvement with them. They've obviously had a great start, and I just felt even previewing the game during the week going into this game against Man City. They got Man City at a good time in terms of Rodri and we'll point out we did point out the stats with him in terms of when he's missing mm. and it's been backed up again in the last week because the three games that he's missed now they've got beaten in all three so that even enhances that stat further um, so I just felt they got them at a good time but the fact that they were at home as well this was a much bigger game for Arsenal than it was for Man City because they had to grasp the nettle and they had to beat them um, with the home advantage and with no Rodri and just psychologically because I think Man City have beaten them in the last 12 Premier League games so just in terms of the psychology of it I felt it was so important that they had to get the victory however that came whether they played well played poorly got a fluky goal whatever the case may be they just had to win and that's the way it kind of played out really because it wasn't the best game when you think of the quality of both sets of players uh, it was scrappy enough for large periods but ultimately However the goal came, it came towards the end with that lucky deflection, but they won't care today. And I just think going into the international break now with two weeks off as well, uh, they have a chance to get Saka a bit of a rest if he doesn't go on international duty with England. And I just think they're geared up for a big season. The only worry I have with Arsenal is, and people have pointed it out, is just the centre-forward area. And I'm a bit concerned about the goalkeeping issue as well because Rhea hasn't impressed me. And I know Arteta has made a bit of a big deal of it, but I think Ramsdale has been treated a little bit unfairly. I thought he did well last year they're talking about Ray coming in to enhance them in terms of playing out from the back but he, what's concerning you about David Ray? just because the reason that he was brought in to obviously and we see that and he hasn't goal, been good with his, I don't with think speed. so no you look at him again yesterday shaky enough he gave the goal away against Lons in the Champions League during the week with a pass out from the back as well and I know when you're encouraging that like we see it with Brighton as well 
coughed up two goals against Liverpool playing out from the back I know mistakes like that will happen when you're encouraging it but I just think he made such a big play about getting Ray in mm. when I felt Ramsdale wasn't doing that badly and I don't think he's backed it up something like what we see with Onana again like he was brought in to be playing out from the back the distribution and he's made numerous mistakes as well so I, that would be a little bit of a concern maybe he's just new and he's settling in to be fair to Ray as well and the centre forward area uh, in terms of an out and out number nine like they'll probably strengthen in January mm. they'd be the only two concerns I think everything else bodes really well for Arsenal um, and yeah I, and I did say that they, that they would have a big season and I still think that because I think there's room for improvement still with them Alan, where did soccer go wrong where a keeper's most important job was to pass the ball rather than stop it going in the net? Yeah, here, here, here. I'm with you, Ruby. It's crazy. Uh, I would have always been something similar with uh, the modern day fullback as well. People like obviously talking about uh, or even centre halves. The, the, the new thing is if you can play out from the back. Um, whereas I would have always been old school defend first and if you can play out from the back it's a bonus. But it's fashionable now. They're all doing it, Ruby. Um, and particularly with the goalkeeping and look if you do it right it it does look good and there's obviously plenty of examples of it the likes of Allison, the likes of Ederson uh, who were very good at it uh, Jason Steele at Brighton there is there's plenty of examples but I suppose because of the position that they're playing we might see there could be 50 successful times but just one bad pass leads to a goal and it's mm. highlighted straight away whereas nobody's focusing on the 50 brilliant passes they might have done and I came in here la- the, the day Jason Steele played against Brighton and I was raving about mm. his performance in general he had 54 passes that day and it was incredible his performance so no one really speaks about that when it's really good but like we see at the weekend one bad mistake and it's highlighted yeah, is, to- is, is passing the ball not a basic requirement of playing soccer? Not if you're a goalkeeper. Well, Why not? well, no. Well, it is you now. Need, you need no, but even old school when you, you were concentrating on your on your saves, you still needed somewhat decent distribution. You didn't maybe have to have the composure to to control it, take it around the player, and and an Ederson or an Allison doing a bit much maybe. No shit. Like the reason people were goalkeepers is because they were no good. No, Alan Carley, <laughs> I'll I'll down your fader here and I'll bar you that's, from this studio. That's that's, that's, that's harsh, Alan. That's that's. Very but, but if you look, like I'm I'm a nerd that will watch all these videos online of goalkeeper training sessions, particularly the Premier League goalkeepers as well. They're all ridiculously good footballer skillful now like, it is Shane they weren't always they weren't always okay. in, not, and, and, and the reason they weren't always is because there was so much focus on just the goalkeeping side of it and keeping the ball out it wasn't mm. fashionable back then to have the goalkeeper playing your passes and building attacks through the defence they always kick the ball out yeah, just kick it. But anyone can kick. Anyone can kick. To be fair, there, there was a, the it, it was lumping. It. it was like a, a Gary Owen. Yeah, it, it and was any, kind of anyone can do that. Yeah. Uh, but it is. It's the evolution of a goalkeeper, which is a completely different topic. Even in Gaelic football, yeah. speaking of who can yeah. get a pass, who can come out, as opposed to like there's some teams now that are just playing outfielders in goal because you'd rather have a, an extra man out out the pitch. But however, yeah. um, just. Back, circling full, fully back to Arsenal Manchester City how much of a wobble is this for Manchester City or is this just a, a minor blip and I asked that question with in mind uh, Gary Neville's point on Sky Sports that was kind of put to him about winning the treble mm. and just even the the mental levels that you need to be up at that that y- you do drop off somewhat I know they're going for four in a row or whatever but like yeah you do yeah I'd say that that's definitely a factor uh, Shane but 
it is a wobble and it would be a concern but to be fair to Guardiola and people were laughing two three weeks ago he was pointing this out saying he was concerned mm. because of the players that were out um, and nobody had any sympathy because of the squad that they have but if you take your two best players out of any team in the world you're going to struggle and they've had no De Bruyne now for weeks they had no Rodri they've had no Stones Grealish is only getting back into the rhythm of it so if you go back to that brilliant team that won the Champions League won mm. the league and won everything it was unrecognisable from the team that was playing there against um, Arsenal at the weekend. I'd say it was five or six that weren't involved in that team last year that played yesterday. Mm. So it is a bit of a concern. And he will be worried about the opposition because Arsenal, as I say, they're winning games and they still haven't hit the heights of what I think they can play at, the levels that they can play at. I still think they can go up a notch, Arsenal. I really do. Uh, something what, like the standard that we've seen last year. I don't think they've hit that yet. And that bodes well that if you're performing to a level where you're still not hitting the heights and you're still getting your victories and you're still getting your results and you're top of the league, mm. you must be doing something right. Mm. Who's top of the league, Al? Spurs. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. You were at that game Saturday, were you? I was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They won't right. win the league. Is, is this but, but it, we'll, is this we'll enjoy the ride for the season? No, on a genuine note, is it a two horse race in your view? Long term for, for the Premier League? Yeah, or will I, Spurs be there thereabouts? I no no. I always felt it would be a two horse race with potentially Liverpool in the mix somewhere because um, I think going forward they're absolutely electric Liverpool mm. and obviously Salah as we all, all the ones we know but I think the additions of Sabasalai in midfield he's been absolutely brilliant I know McAllister got caught for a mistake but he's a brilliant player as well so he's building something nicely there Jorgen Klopp so I still think they're somewhere in the mix Spurs will be there thereabouts but not for a league but if Spurs can finish in the, in the Champions League and the reason Spurs won't is because I've watched them the last two weeks now and they're fantastic but they've a fantastic eleven. And as soon as one or two get injured, like if they had no Madison or Son or Romero or Basuma, now he's going to be suspended. Mm. That's when it's going to catch them out. And it's still only early days. So if Postacoglu can get to January with them still somewhere in the mix in the top four, which I think they can because they've huge momentum with them now, he'll strengthen again. And I think Spurs are a coming team for maybe next year, potentially. I think Spurs are only two or three players away from a potential title challenge they're that good at the moment they're really they're really good and obviously they have a brilliant manager mm. so but but I do think to answer your question Shane it'll be Arsenal or Man City this year potentially with Liverpool thrown in somewhere yeah, and Liverpool are tipping along 2-2 draw Brighton at the weekend they probably should have won yeah they probably should have and they'd be disappointed because once they go 2-1 up they should be seeing that game out um, now I know listening to even Lewis Dunk got the equaliser and he felt they were the better team but I thought Liverpool in fairness and I say going forward the, the only concern I have with Liverpool is is coughing up those goals at the back like even the one where they played so well against Spurs going down to nine men still the goal they gave away was like an unforced error with, with Matip at the back and the OG that could have easily been kind of uh, not given away and then you look at the, the goal they gave away particularly the one yesterday the equaliser for Dunk it's Robertson and McAllister at the near post and that needs someone like like a like a dominant centre half type figure at that near post to obviously uh, intercept the ball coming in but Robertson kind of half threw a leg at it and wasn't sure because of the area it was coming into and McAllister behind him did something similar and Dunk is in behind him and it's a goal and to me that's just poor defending like there's no one there taking charge of the situation mm. and that should have been basically as I say if they didn't concede that goal they would have ran out 2-1 winners and I do think they're building something I think Liverpool are strong particularly going forward they have so much Dynamism and mm. and strength and quality and from all areas like you look at any and then the two backing it up uh, Sabasalai as well and McAllister and Gravenberg played yesterday as well I think Liverpool going forward um, are very very strong. What about the miss at the end? Obviously, ball at place. He takes bad pace and he takes it on the volley. 
Is that technically quite difficult or is it unforgivable to miss from where he was shooting? I think it was unforgivable to miss, uh, Ruby. I th- it is quite difficult, but it, the only thing in his defence, it was on his left foot and people say, obviously, because it was his weaker foot, potentially that made it a little bit more difficult. But I think he should have scored. There was something similar even in the Luton game that we were at. Ogbeni, by the way, I have to throw that in. Chidozi Ogbeni was absolutely brilliant for Luton on Saturday. Really good and it bodes well, obviously, for the games. He coming. was man of the match. Yeah, he was as well, wasn't he? Brilliant. I think he so against Burnley. Yeah, so, really, yeah. really good. But he played a ball across the face of the goal as well in early in the second half when it was nil all. And Adebayo come in and instead of going for it with his left foot, yeah. he went for it with his wrong foot, Ruby, across his yeah. body and uh, lost his balance. Yeah, lost his balance and fell over the line. And that's and that's it's amazing even watching um the game at the weekend with Luton and Spurs and then watching even the cup semi-final yesterday with a team that are at the bottom and a team that are at the top. The top end of the pitch is the difference. The quality at the top end of the pitch with the top teams. Madison, who didn't really feature much great to watch didn't really feature much one moment of magic sets up the goal for Spurs and the win Luton had three or four only half three quarter chances mm. but they're slashing at things and slicing at things and no composure in front of the goal and it's amazing even no matter what level you go to the top end compares to the bottom end of the pitch is always where the difference is see someone fix the clock on Old Trafford Alan <laughs> Fergie <laughs> yeah um, it was a good victory to be fair to them and it was probably I know they've been really poor but they probably haven't been getting the break of the ball either and Ten Hag has had to deal with a lot in the last few weeks so I'd say he was absolutely delighted more so as well for, for Ruby like you could imagine if that was another defeat on Saturday Oof. which going into an international break with all the doom and gloom that would have been hovering over them the pressure building uh, questions to be answered so just from that sense alone I'd say it just gives him a bit of breathing space that he can obviously go off now um, wherever the players are going internationally but at least he can kind of breathe for that couple of weeks and try and get them back on track again when he comes back but I still don't think there's any corners turned but it was a big victory What does Scott McTominay have to do to get into that yeah, team? I what, feel like yeah, and I mentioned he's it, been a hard done by Yeah he has been I agree with you totally Shane and even in fairness to him you have to credit his professionalism as well because even though he hasn't been playing at United he goes off internationally playing with Scotland and he's their best player and he's scoring goals so he's obviously looking after himself really well a very good professional gets his opportunity he's looking to take it for whatever reason Ten Hag doesn't fancy him I never fancied him in the long term anyway at United but I always said I would have him as part of the 16 in the squad and playing in games something like what we used to see maybe with John O'Shea and League Cup games FA Cup games you could always throw him in and be and rely on him and I do agree which I think he's been harshly treated It's admirable though his attitude 100% Ruby and, and, and he that, spoke very well sorry to cut across you yeah. in, in his post-match interview just about that sorry go on Alan and that's one thing where I'm really surprised at Ten Hag with him because he's surrounded by other fellas who you couldn't uh, basically label them with a great attitude <laughs> when you look at some of the other players whereas I thought Ten Hag would look at this lad and think a good honest solid professional you know what you're getting out of him an 8 out of 10 um, loves the club wants to be there mm. oh, ticks so many boxes but for whatever reason Ten Hag hasn't had him featuring at all whatsoever and I only like if it's for footballing reasons which obviously he doesn't feel as though technically he's as good as maybe an Eriksson and, and he's not as good as an Eriksson but but he's not that bad technically Scott McTominay yeah. like it's not like he's a, he's a player who all he can do is just run around and tackle like there's plenty of those type of players around and I can understand the point people saying well technically he's not great but he gives us great energy McTominay is not bad technically mm. um, so I don't know has something gone on in the background but particularly when you see some other lads acting up and not being good professionals and then you have this lad who's as honest as the day is long and not getting his game that's on the manager where I'd be critical of him 
I was in Liverpool earlier in the week and you can see Everton's new ground rising up. There's a roof going on it at the moment. Another massive result for them because they're going to need to stay in the Premier League to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely, Ruby. And again, it's I always think with them like they're they're so poor. Yet it's the manager I think that gets them the results because even though they're a limited bunch, he'll always have them well organised, well disciplined. Um, they'll always be in games because of him because they won't def- they won't concede a lot. But they do. They need they need as many victories. But I think what will help Everton, you look at the teams that have come up, and even as I said, I watch Luton in the flesh and the golfing class from the teams that have come up from the Championship to the Premier League like it is in most leagues but the the, the golf in quality is absolutely monumental and that's what will maybe help Everton because I think there will be two or three teams worse off than them mm. That new ground being built will bode well for the Euro 2028 bid that hopefully we'll get confirmation of UK and Ireland tomorrow um, FAI Cup you alluded to there that the golfing class in terms of um, Cork and Pats might have been just that finishing touch mm. Rory Keating had so many chances but Cork couldn't get the equaliser and then Pats go on and, and get the second goal later on yeah and that's what it boiled down to really Shane because Cork played quite well in terms of their application and desire and endeavour and hard work and they had the crowd behind them and all those things that would point to maybe why you, why Cork might have won the game in, in, in terms of how we were previewing it as well um, but ultimately it comes down to that quality in front of goal and they're so reliant on Keating and mm-hmm. it's almost as if, if he doesn't score and he did have two good chances one the whistle by the post which was one that he manufactured himself but the second one was the header that yeah. I felt that was the best chance for him and he should have got it on target and even when you look back on the four or five even half chances that they've had there was one bargain he had at the back post as yeah. well and again slashed at the volley and a high and wide but they never tested the goalkeeper either Linus didn't have a save to make so for all their possession and endeavour and fight and attitude they never tested the goalkeeper once and in the second half even though Pats weren't great second half they managed the game really really well and just always kept them at arm's length and, and as you say they had the quality for when the chance fell they scored the goals Conor Carty got a great second goal mm. um, and I think it's the final that we all wanted as well Shane Bowes and Pats no disrespect to Cork but Cork are ninth in the Premier Division table for a reason and I wouldn't have wanted to see them in the FEI Cup final because I don't think they would have deserved to be there um, Pats have travelled all around the country they've gone to Derry they've gone to F- Bally Buffet they went to Cork yesterday and they're there on Merit and they're a much better team and I think it'll be a much better final to have Bowes and Pats in it yeah I love Declan Devine's interview after the Bowes game. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's passionate. It was brilliant to listen to him. Brilliant to watch. Yeah, he's so passionate. And that's what... Um, it's it's. I wasn't sure about the partnership in terms of him being appointed the Bowes manager when they gave it to him um, because I just wasn't sure in terms of they had other candidates that, that Declan was almost kind of fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh in line and they went after two or three others and didn't get them. Um but where the one thing that, that they do match up so well and marry up so well, Declan's passion and the Bohemian support and they marry up so well together and Declan yeah. feeds off that so much and he's perfect for it, Ruby, because there is a real bond, a real connection. And it was probably built, Shane will notice, built the Keith Long days and they've always had that unity and spirit with the fans and all and Bohemians and they have really good support and, and that's been growing over the last number of years and Declan has been perfect to follow that on and now they're in the final. Um, they obviously came up short on penalties two years ago against St. Pat's mm. now they have the chance to obviously put that right and you're 100% he's so passionate and and that kind of feeds into the players then the motivation of them um, and it'll be a great final Ruby I'm really looking forward to it Absolutely um, final question on it given the atmosphere both 
in Galway and in Cork does this just get rid of the any argument that there should be neutral venues for the semi-finals yeah 100% we yeah. had two great venues Shane um Aim and DC Park and one t- one positive for Galway obviously they're, they're, they've gotten promoted so to have them back in the Premier Division will be great and I know I've been hard on Cork there but I think we need Cork in the Premier Division as well so I hope they manage to navigate their way through the playoffs and keep themselves in the Premier Division because we do need a good Galway and we do need a good Cork just even from a geographical spread and they're very big clubs as well that we need um, as many of those good clubs in, in the league as possible so I do hope Cork manage to keep themselves up Okay Good stuff, uh, Alan Colley. Thank you very much. In fact, that is where we are going uh, to leave it. Uh, Better the Silva uh, is up next. Big thanks to uh, you, Alan, all our con- contributors. Big thanks to you, Ruby, uh, as Big well. Big word, contributors. Yeah, contributors. I'm spilling over myself. Do you know why I'm spilling over myself? Because I'm getting so excited to listen to Better the Silva, who's up next on 2FM. So from all of the Cayman team, it is. Bye for now.